It was at a gospel meeting uh, many years ago that a preacher was preaching on the subject of baptism. And there was a lady in the audience that um, was visiting from the community because of some friend that had invited her. And she didn't particularly care to hear what the young man was saying. He, of course, in a very logical way, in a very scriptural way, was showing from God's Word uh, what baptism, uh, what was taught about baptism in the Bible. And she kept getting more and more upset about it. And finally, at the conclusion of the lesson, uh, as she was leaving and the preacher was standing back in the foyer, uh, talking to people and shaking their hands and Just in case you don't realize this, you know, the purpose of a preacher during the Lord's Day is to shake people in, uh, shake people up, and then shake them out, in just case you didn't know that or not. But he was back there shaking people out, and uh, she grabbed real hold of his part of his hand, and she said, "Uh, young man, I don't see how you get all that baptism stuff out of the Bible. And the young man perhaps was being a little coy and maybe should not have responded with it this way. But uh, uh, he, of course, squeezed the woman's hand back and she says, Well, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, you can't get that stuff, that baptism stuff out of the Bible. It's in the Bible to stay. And whether we like it or not, baptism is in the Bible to stay. Whether we read it one time or we read it many times, it is in God's Word, and therefore, it is something with which we must deal. Well, somebody says, well, I agree that it's in the Bible, but I don't understand why you people in the church of Christ put so much emphasis upon it. Well, the reason why we in the church of Christ put so much emphasis in it is because God put so much emphasis upon it. I think you will see, if you do a careful study of God's Word, you discover that baptism has always been God's dividing line when it comes to salvation. Baptism has always been God's dividing line. In fact, I think if you go back even to the Old Testament, you discover that water has always been a dividing line either in an individual's salvation or in a nation's salvation. It's almost like God in the Old Testament was giving us a type that would be carried over as an anti-type in the New Testament or giving us a shadow that would be the real when we get over into the New Testament. Because even in the Old Testament we see what we might call types of baptism where God very clearly lays down the fact that water is the dividing line in that particular circumstance. As I told you a couple weeks ago, you can look at the Old Testament and see the black and white that when you get to the New Testament, you discover the color version of it. And so I think even when it comes to baptism, which is very clearly taught in the New Testament, you see a shadow of a, or a form of it in the Old Testament. And so what I would like for us to do this morning as we look at this uh, concept once again, that we begin this morning by going to the Old Testament 
and look at some very clear examples of how that water was a dividing line when it came to God. And after we've looked at these Old Testament examples, we'll move into the New Testament and once again show from God's Word that baptism is God's dividing line. Now, the very first place I want us to look at this morning is in the book of 2 Kings. If you'll open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, and we're going to see there a story about a man by the name of Naaman. Naaman, as the Bible tells us, and we won't take time to read this entire text, obviously, and won't take time to review his entire story, but Naaman uh, was a man who was an uh, officer in the nation of Syria. And the Bible describes him as being a great man, evidently a man that had a lot of different things going for him. But Naaman had a great problem. Naaman had a life-threatening problem. Naaman had a problem, if it was not dealt with, was going to be something that would cause him to lose his life. You see, Naaman had leprosy. Naaman had leprosy. So you can imagine how this man, even though he was a great military leader, evidently he had wealth and he had great position, but no matter what he had in this life, the thing that was constantly upon his mind, something that was always going to be something that he realized that was going to be a problem, was that he had leprosy. And I, of course, am reminded of the fact, no matter what we have in this life, whether it be position or whether it be wealth or even if it be friends, if we have to deal with the problem of sin and have not dealt with it, we too have a very terrible disease, much like leprosy, that will eventually cause us to lose our souls. So you can imagine that Naaman was urgently wanting to deal with this particular situation, and he met a young maid from Israel who came to him and gave him the gospel. Now, when you hear that, you may think, well, she didn't teach him about Jesus Christ. No, but she came to him and told him some good news. And that's all the gospel is. The gospel is good news. And she told this man, she says, if you'll go see this prophet, this prophet that lives over in the land of Israel by the name of Elisha, he can cure you of this leprosy, this problem that you have. He can take care of it. So uh, Naaman decides to go see Elisha. And when he gets there, verse 10, we see that this is the command that uh, Elisha gave to Naaman. Elijah sent a messenger unto him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan River seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Now notice what's happened here. Elijah says, if you want to be healed of your leprosy, if you want to be clean, then you're going to have to go dip in the Jordan River. Now what has God done here? He has told through the prophet Elisha, that the dividing line between Elisha having his leprosy and not having his leprosy was the Jordan River. There was the dividing line between salvation and not having salvation, from being leprous and not having leprosy. 
Now, when Naaman heard this, at first he, he was mad. He goes on and says, aren't there better rivers in my nation than the Jordan River? But here's the problem. He wasn't thinking uh, uh, about God. He was thinking about the water. But folks, I'll tell you this morning, as I tell other of my denominational friends who try to say that we put too much emphasis upon the water, there's no power in that water, and there's no power in the Jordan River. But instead, it is by the power of God that Naaman was going to be healed. He just simply said, I want you to cross that dividing line. And here is the dividing line I have placed before you, the Jordan River. If you want to be healed, you need to be dipped seven times in it. Well, thankfully, Naaman had some servants who were more clear-minded than Naaman was. And they told him and convinced him that he needed to be dipped in the Jordan River seven times, or if you will, baptized in the Jordan River seven times. And the Bible tells us that when Naaman did this, he was healed. His skin came back to him fresh as a baby's skin. Now, what did Naaman say afterwards? Did he say, now I know there's no other water in all the world such as the Jordan River because look what it did to me. That water, that Jordan River was powerful. You would not believe how it can heal leprosy. No, that's not what he said. In fact, look at the text. Verse 15 says, And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth. He understood it was not any power in the water, but the power was of the power of God. God had just simply says, if you want to be healed, you need to cross this dividing line. Now, when we first read about this example of God setting forth water as a dividing line, that may seem kind of foolish to us, as it seemed foolish to Naaman. We need to be reminded, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27, that God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. But what was the difference here? Naaman decided to obey God. It was by the grace of God that Naaman was healed of his leprosy, but also it was by his obedience, and God set forth the standard of his obedience as being the Jordan River. We are reminded of this in the passage of 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, where Peter reminds us we have purified our souls by obeying the truth. The truth was, Elijah told Naaman, if you want to be healed by God, you need to dip in the Jordan River seven times. And when Naaman obeyed that command, he was healed. But folks, don't miss the point I want you to see. Where was God's dividing line in this story? Where was the place that we can earmark, that we can highlight, that we can say without a doubt that there was a before situation and there was an after situation? What was it in between that made the difference? What was the dividing line? In the story of Naaman, the dividing line was the Jordan River, and Naaman was not healed until he crossed that dividing line. 
Well, let's look at another Old Testament example. This time, let's turn to the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 14, here we have the story of the Israelite people who have been in Egyptian captivity. Pharaoh has held them captive. Well, God sent a deliverer with good news. God sent a deliverer with the gospel. He told them, you can have the opportunity to be free. You no longer have to be held captive by Pharaoh, but instead you can be free. Now, I want you to understand what is going on here in chapter 14. God had already sent that final plague. Pharaoh had made the decision to let the people go, and they were heading in the right direction. But here's the problem. They were still in the land of Egypt. They still had Pharaoh breathing down their neck. And so God says, if you want to be saved, in fact, what does it say in the text right here in verse 13? And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. If you want to be saved, if you want to be free from, uh, from Egyptian captivity, there is something now you need to do. What do I need to do, Moses? Well, what you need to do is you need to cross God's dividing line called the Red Sea. In fact, look what the text says once again. Verse 15, And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore Christ thou unto me, speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. Sometimes when we uh, talk about somebody responding to the gospel, we say, well, did you realize that we had some people go forward today? And what we mean by that is somebody responded. They came forward in front of the assembly and said, I want to be saved. Well, here God is telling Moses, you need to tell the people of Israel that they need to respond to the invitation. They need to be saved. Well, what is it they need to do, God? They need to cross God's dividing line. They need to cross that Red Sea. And as soon as they do, they'll be out of Egyptian captivity. These soldiers that are chasing them are going to be destroyed. But salvation's on the other side. If you want to leave Egypt and get to the promised land, you've got to cross God's dividing line. If you want to be out of captivity and start enjoying freedom, you've got to cross God's dividing line. Keep in mind, make sure we understand the scenario here. The people of Israel desired freedom. They're moving in the right direction away from, free, away from Egypt and toward the promised land. But they are not free until they cross the Red Sea. But once they obeyed the words of the preacher Moses, and they crossed that Red Sea, they were no longer in Egyptian captivity. They were free from Pharaoh, and they were headed toward the promised land. Now, once again, someone might say, well, Jim, you're making way too much about this, way too much about the fact that you're trying to use the Red Sea as a form of baptism. You're making way too much about this and trying to say that this was a type or a shadow of what we see in the New Testament when it comes to baptism. There may be some people here thinking that I'm making way too much about this. 
But if you're going to say that I'm making way too much about this, then you're going to have to say that the Apostle Paul made way too much about this. Because he uses this particular example, and in an inspired commentary, tells us that this relates to our own baptism. Open your New Testaments to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul says about this particular event. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. He says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant, how that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now what has the Apostle Paul done there? He says, I want to make sure you understand this. I don't want you to be ignorant about this. But he wants us to understand, those of us who even read his words today, that when the Israelite people passed through the Red Sea, they were being baptized. They were crossing God's dividing line. It was by the grace of God, but once again, it was because of their obedience to go forward. God had them cross the Red Sea, and Paul even says it's a form of baptism. Well, how in the world can it be a form of baptism, Paul? All you have to do is look back at the text again. He says they had water on either side of them. They had a cloud, which of course is made of water, over top of them. So they were completely covered. They were completely immersed. They were covered by water. Therefore, Paul says, this was a shadow or a type of our own baptism. But once again, don't miss the point. God says, you want to be saved. You want to be free from captivity. You need to cross my dividing line. And in this particular case, it was the Red Sea. Well, let's look at one final Old Testament example. And we'll go back even further this time to the book of Genesis. to Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 8. And there we discover, in this particular case, that the flood was God's dividing line in the salvation of Noah and his family. Here in this case, we've got water once again, and the Bible will very clearly show us that this flood that covered the entire world was God's dividing line when it came to Noah and his family being saved. Well, there's one very important point I want to make sure that we see as we look at Genesis chapter 6. And verse 8, notice that real short verse there. Talking about the situation with Noah and the world and his family and the ark and everything that's going to come afterwards. Notice it says very clearly, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How was Noah saved? One fact we need to make sure that we point out this morning is that Noah was saved by grace. The only way that anyone can possibly be saved by God is going to be by the grace of God. I know sometimes people try to claim, critics of the church claiming that we never preach grace, but folks, every single person here, if you are saved today, it is by the grace of God. There is no possible way we can save ourselves. And certainly Noah had done nothing to deserve this salvation. 
Just as we do not deserve our salvation, it is all by the grace of God. So keep that in mind. Noah was saved by grace. But also as we open our Bibles in the New Testament, we get over to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. When you get the opportunity to read that, you also discover that Noah was saved by something else. The Bible tells us there that Noah was saved by faith. Noah was saved by faith. It was because of his faith that he was saved. It was saved by, he was saved by grace and he was saved by faith. And I think everyone here will, get, will agree, hey, preacher, preach on. That's right, we're saved by grace and we're saved by faith. But here's something that we sometimes miss. The Bible also tells us that Noah was saved by water. Noah was saved by water. Now, that's not my words. Those are the words of the Apostle Peter. Open your Bibles to 2 Peter. Or, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 3. And the passage that Jeff read for us just a few moments ago. I want you to look down at verse 20 of this particular text. And I want you to look down at the last three words of what Peter says. Now keep in mind we are talking about Noah. The Bible tells us he was saved by grace. Amen. The Bible tells us he was saved by faith. Amen. But the Bible also tells us very clearly here in black and white that Noah was saved by faith. Water. The text says, God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Now, as I was growing up, and I got old enough to start comprehending parts of God's Word and started doing my own study, I came across this particular passage and it made no sense to me whatsoever. Because every person here, even our youngsters, understand how in the world was Noah saved? He was saved by an ark, wasn't he? He got in that ark with all those animals and God protected him from the flood and therefore he was saved by the ark. That's not the point that Peter is making. Because all we're thinking about here is the danger and the deadliness of the flood. But there was something greater that, that Noah and his family needed to be saved from. They needed to be saved from all of the corruption, all of the pollution, all of the sin of that world. They were living in a world that had turned against God, that no longer had faith in God. And the purpose of the flood was what? It was to destroy that old world so that Noah, when he got off that ark, he stepped onto a country, a world that was fresh and new again with all of that sin washed away. Yes, Noah was saved by the danger of the flood, by the ark, but he was saved by the dangers of sin in the world, by the flood. But once again, don't miss the point. What was the dividing line between an old world of sin and a fresh, brand new world that, that Noah and his family stepped onto? Once again, it was water. There was God's dividing line. It washed away the sins of the world. In fact, Peter gives more emphasis to this than the rest of the text. He says, 
When God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was of preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water, he carries the force further into the New Testament by saying this, the like figure are in the same way by the same pattern, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now what is Peter saying there? He is saying that in the same way that the flood was the dividing line, the means of salvation to Noah and his family, God has placed baptism, water baptism, as the dividing line between a person being lost and a person being saved today. Well, my time is running out, so I've got some more material to cover, so we're going to have to move on. Well, let's look at some examples in the New Testament where we clearly see God's dividing line. Over in Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 36 and going to verse 41, we see on the day of Pentecost, God's dividing line very clearly put forth. There in the text, Peter preaching comes to his invitation. He says in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. The text says when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter tells them in verse 38 to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. Now tell me something, where is the dividing line in that? They believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. They were convicted of their sins knowing that they had crucified the very Son of God. And Peter told them there's something you need to do. You need to repent. But in order to have your sins remitted... You want to get rid of your sin problem. You want to get rid of your leprosy problem. You want to get rid of your captivity problem. If you want to wash away those sins, you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Now tell me once again, folks, on the day of Pentecost, where was the dividing line? Well, verse 41 tells us. It says, They that gladly received His word were then baptized. And the Lord added to the church that day about 3,000 souls. Once again, my time is running out, but can you see there God's dividing line? Let's look at another example. This is the story of, of course, Saul of Tarsus. We read his story in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26. And we can rehearse the story once again, but I think most of us know it. You remember how that uh, Saul saw the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. And after realizing that he was so terribly wrong, that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God, he believed in all his heart that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. What does he say after he's convicted of his sins? He says, Lord, what will you have me to do? Acts 9 and verse 6, I believe. He says, Lord, what will you have me to do? The Lord says, well, you know, Saul, there's nothing you need to do. I know you believe in me now. In fact, why don't you just hit the ground there and say the sinner's prayer and we'll just take care of all this. No, that's not what he told him. He said, you go into the city and you'll be told what you need to do. And when he got to the city after a period of days, when he did pray, but that didn't do him any good. When he did fast, but that didn't do him any good. 
Because when the preacher got there, he says in Acts 22 and verse 16, And now why tarriest thou? In other words, what are you waiting on, Paul? This time of, of, of fasting and praying, there's something more important you need to do. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now once again, want to make sure we understand the point. Where was the dividing line in the story of the soft of soft horses? Ananias told him, you still have your sins. If you want your sins washed away, you need to be baptized. Remember what the text says again, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Notice also, as we look at this, that it's very obvious that baptism is God's dividing line in the plan of salvation. When Jesus gave us the command in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Do you see the dividing line there? He plays very clearly that it's predicated upon our faith But there's one thing that has to be done. That's the dividing line that is an obedience of our faith. He says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Somebody oftentimes say, well, it doesn't say anything in the rest of the passage about he that believeth not and is baptized not. Well, that'd just be foolish because if a person's not going to believe, there's no point in him being baptized. But if I was here to tell you today that I would give you $1,000 if you were willing to believe and be baptized for that $1,000, you would understand what it meant to believe and be baptized. There was something that must be done. There is a line that must be crossed if you were going to receive that $1,000 and the same way if you're going to be saved. Jesus says you must believe and be baptized. Oh, I wish our time, we had more time, but let me give you one more passage. Over in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, we are told there that when a person is baptized, that they die to the old man of sin, they are buried, and then they rise to walk in newness of life. I don't know how many times you've ever thought about why Paul put what he put there in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. The reason why he put what he put there is because of what he says in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, where he says, You were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you, and now you have become the servants of righteousness. Folks, right there we have a very clear example of a before picture and an after picture, and there's something in between. There is a dividing line that takes place. And what does Paul say that dividing line was? He says, you have obeyed from the heart that form, pattern, or similitude of that doctrine that I have delivered unto you. What is the doctrine that he has delivered unto them? Well, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first three verses or so, Paul points out that the gospel in a nutshell, and this is what this is all about, folks, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says the gospel is this, the death of burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's the gospel, everybody. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you've ever heard anybody say, well, I sure hope he obeys the gospel. How does one obey the gospel? 
Well, if he was truly, in its strictest sense, going to obey the gospel, what would he have to obey? He would have to obey the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when Paul was talking about that form of doctrine in Romans chapter 6, 17 and 18, the form of doctrine that they had obeyed was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How did they obey a form of it, or a pattern of it, or a similitude of it? Well, you go back up to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, where we're reminded as many of us have, that has been buried with Christ, have been buried with His death. Because as we have been buried in baptism, we too can rise to walk in newness of life. What is He saying? He's saying the same way Jesus died, you died to that old man of sin. In the same way Jesus was buried in the tomb, you were buried in the watery grave of baptism. In the same way Jesus rose from the dead the third day, you rise out of the grave of baptism to walk in newness of life. Now so many of our denominational friends try to tell us that a person dies to sin and then they rise to walk in newness of life and then later on because of an outward showing of an inward faith, or because to join some particular denomination, you take this resurrected man, you take this man that's walking in newness of life, and you bury him. Folks, that just doesn't make any sense. That defies all common logic. No, God's dividing line tells us, here's a dead man, and here's a resurrected man, and what lies between? What is God's dividing line? The fact that they had been buried with Christ in baptism. Well, very quickly... Baptism is God's dividing line between being taught and the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 28 and verse 19, Jesus tells them to go out and teach the world and baptizing them, what? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There is God's dividing line shown once again in Mark 16, 16. What is the dividing line between a believer and being saved? Jesus says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Where is the dividing line? In Acts 2 and verse 38, when Peter was preaching that first gospel sermon, where was, what was in between repentance and remission of sins? What was the dividing line? It was baptism. Over in Acts 8 and verses 36 and 39, we have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And he asked, Peter, or asked Philip when he saw the water, See, here is water. What doth hindereth me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest, thou mayest. And the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the text continues, They both go down into the water. And after Philip has baptized him, they come up out of the water. And what does it say? That the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. There was the confession and there was the rejoicing. But what lies in between? What was the dividing line? It was baptism. case we looked at just a minute ago, Acts 22 and verse 16. Where was, what was the dividing line between the calling on the name of the Lord for salvation and sins being washed away? As we hope we very clearly showed a few moments ago, it was Paul responding to the fact that Ananias said, Why tarest thou arise and be baptized, washing away his sins? Well, folks, we've run out of time this morning, so I'm just going to stop right there. But I hope we very clearly have shown this morning that God has a plan of salvation. And in that plan, there is a line that very clearly has to be crossed if you're going to be saved. 
If you're here today and you feel like you have a disease like leprosy called sin in your life and you want to have it removed, you need to cross God's dividing line. If you feel like you're being held in captivity by Satan and by sin, you need to cross God's dividing line. If you want to have the sins of this world washed away from you, you need to cross God's dividing line. But let me have one last point. I'm sorry this is taking so long. What would have happened if Naaman said, no, I'm not going to do it, I'm going to go home? He would still have his leprosy. What if the Israelite people said, no, I'm too scared to cross the Red Sea? This doesn't make any sense to me. They'd still be in Egyptian captivity. What would have happened if Noah and the rest of his family refused to get on that ark and let the world flood, and let the world be flooded so that sin can be washed away? They would have perished with everybody else. They would have been lost. Today, if you're not willing to obey the command to be baptized, your situation is going to be the same. It's not because God owes us anything. It's by His grace. It's predicated upon your faith. But yet God has put a dividing line there as proof of your obedience. We hope that you'll cross it today as together we stand and sing.